Let's get our Bibles this morning. Turn to Acts chapter 22. We're going to continue making our way through this uh, great New Testament book. And um, really excited about this topic this morning because we're going to talk about our testimony in a, in a hostile culture. Before we, uh, before we jump into the word this morning, let's, let's pause and um, let's ask God's blessing upon this time. I want to ask you to focus upon the Lord. Look to the Lord, lofty and exalted, sitting on his throne, sovereign, in control. And he's good. He's righteous, gracious. And he, by his son Jesus Christ, has decreed that we can come boldly into his presence right to the throne of grace this morning. We come with praise for all that he has done. We come thanking him that he's the provider of everything that we need. We learned that in Bible Fellowship this morning. There's nothing that we ever need that he doesn't supply. The Lord is our shepherd. We will not want. So come with thanksgiving in your heart. Let's ask him this morning to speak to us, to his word. To to allow us to hear what he has to say. And not just to hear, but to put it into practice in our lives. And Father, I ask you this morning that I may be able to speak in a way that would truly benefit your people and in a way that would uh, be compelling to those that are here that have not trusted you as their Savior, that in your love and grace that you would draw them to yourself and help them to understand the hope that is in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we give you this time now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Who am I? You've seen my picture a thousand times. It, it's a picture that made the world gasp. It's a picture that defined my life. I'm nine years old, running along a puddled roadway in front of an expressionless soldier, arms outstretched, naked, shrieking in pain and fear, the dark contour of a napalm bomb billowing in the distance. My own people, the South Vietnamese, had been bombing the trade routes used by the Viet Cong rebels. I had not been targeted, of course. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. These bombs brought me immeasurable pain. Even now, some 40 years later, I am still receiving treatment for burns that cover my arms, back, and neck. The emotional and spiritual pain was even harder to endure. And yet, looking back, 
past the five decades, I realized that those same bombs that brought so much suffering and also brought great healing, these bombs led me to Christ. As a child, I was raised in the religion of Kaodai. My grandparents were important leaders within the religion, and they enjoyed respect of the entire community. Following in their footsteps, my parents, who had grown up knowing no other religion except Kaodai, also devoted themselves to its beliefs, as did all my siblings. Kaodai is is universalist in nature. It recognizes all religions as having one same divine origin, which is God or Allah, a tower or, or nothingness, or pretty much any other deity you could imagine. You are God and God is you. We had this mantra ingrained in us. We were equal opportunity worshipers, giving every God a shot. Looking back, I see my family's religion as something of a charm bracelet slung around my wrist, each dangling bobble representing yet another possible divine, possibility of divine assistance. When troubles came along, and every day it seemed they did, I was encouraged to rub those charms in hopes that, it would, that help would arrive. For years, I, I prayed to the gods of Kaodai for healing and peace, but As one prayer after another went unanswered, it became clear that either they were non-existence or they didn't care to, to lend a hand. And so I continued to bear the crippling weight of anger, bitterness, and resentment toward those who caused my suffering. The searing fire that penetrated my body, the ensuing burn baths, the dry, itchy skin, the inability to sweat, which turned my flesh into an oven in Vietnam's sweltering heat. I craved relief that never came. And yet, despite every last external circumstance that threatened to overtake me, mind, body, and soul, the most amazing pain, agonizing pain I suffered during that season of life dwelt in my heart. I was alone as alone as a person could be. I could not turn to a friend, for nobody wished to befriend me. I was toxic. Everybody knew it. To be near me was to be near hardship. Wise people stay away. I was alone atop a mountain of rage. I was made to... Why was I made to wear these awful scars? In 1982, I found myself crouched inside Saigon Central Library, pulling books of religion off shelves one by one. The stack in front of me uh, included books on Baha'i, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and Kaldai. It also contained a copy of the New Testament. I thumbed through several books before finally pulling the New Testament into my lap. An hour later, I had picked my way through the Gospels, and at least two things became abundantly clear. First, despite all that I had learned through Kaldai, that there were many gods, that there were many pathways to holiness, that the burden of success in religion rested atop my own weary uh, slump shoulders, Jesus presented himself as the way, the truth, and the life. His entire ministry seemed pointed to one straightforward claim. I am the way you get to God, and there is no other way but me. Second, this Jesus had suffered in defense of his claims. 
He had been mocked, tortured, and killed. Well, why would he endure such things, I wondered, if he were not really the Son of God? I had never been exposed to this side of Jesus, the, the wounded one, the one who bore scars. I turned over this new information in my mind as a gem in my hand, relishing the light that was cast from all sides. The more I read, the more I came to believe that he really was who he said he was, that he really had done what he said he had done, and that most important to me, he would really do all that he promised in his word. Perhaps he could help me make sense of my pain and at least come to terms with my scars. My salvation experience happened, fittingly enough, on Christmas Eve. It was 1982, and I was attending a a special worship service at a small church in Saigon. The pastor spoke of how Christmas is not about the gifts we receive, give to each other, but but about one particular gift and one particular gift in particular, the gift of Jesus Christ. As I listened to this message, I knew that something was shifting inside me. How desperately I needed peace. How I was ready for love and joy. I had so much hate in my heart, so much bitterness. I wanted to let go of all my pain. I wanted to pursue life instead of holding fast to death. I wanted this Jesus. So when the pastor finished speaking, I stood up, stepped out into the aisle, and made my way to the front of the sanctuary to say yes to Jesus Christ. And there... In a small church in Vietnam, mere miles from the, from the road where my journey had began amid the chaos of war, on that night before the world celebrated the birth of the Messiah, I invited Jesus Christ into my heart. When I woke up that Christmas morning, I experienced the kind of healing that can only come from God. I was finally at peace. Nearly half a century has passed since I found myself running, frightened, naked, in pain down that road in Vietnam. I will never forget the horrors of that day, the bombs, the fire, the shrieks, the fear. Nor will I forget the years of trials and torments that followed. But when I think about how far I have come, the freedom and the peace that comes from faith in Jesus... I realized that nothing greater or more powerful than the love of our blessed Savior. My faith in Jesus has enabled me to forgive those who have hurt me and scarred me. It has enabled me to pray for my enemies rather than to curse them. It has enabled me not to just tolerate them, but to truly love them. I will forever bear the scars of that day. And that picture will always serve as a reminder of the unspeakable evil which humanity is capable. That picture defined my life. In the end, it gave me a mission, a ministry, a cause. Today, I thank God for that picture. Today, I thank God for everything, even for that road, especially for that road. My name Kim Fufan Tai. And that is my personal testimony. As we come to Acts chapter 22 today, we are going to hear the account of another person 
who experienced a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ on a road, the road to Damascus. It's the testimony of how God brought Saul of Tarsus to faith in Jesus Christ and, and transformed his life forever. Now, uh, the account of Paul's conversion, is, it comes to us or appears three times in the book of Acts. We've already seen it once in Acts chapter 9. It's here in chapter 22, and it appears again in Acts chapter 26. And a personal t- uh, testimony is a powerful tool for proclaiming the sovereign salvation of our God. Every true Christian, every true believer has a personal testimony. If you, are, if you have trusted Christ... You have a personal testimony. And, and, and you see, your, your personal testimony is especially effective in a hostile world where a direct presentation of the gospel oftentimes may be, may be rejected or cut off almost immediately. A personal testimony has the, has the, the ability of opening doors and creating an interest in people's lives to hear more about what happened and what God has done. It, it opens the door for the gospel. And while the, the personal uh, testimony contains many facets of the gospel, it, its greatest ability is to diffuse hostility and make a way for us to present the gospel. Now, except for the Lord Jesus himself, uh, the Apostle Paul is without the doubt the greatest example uh, in Scripture of how believers can declare the gospel in a hostile culture. Uh, no one experienced more hostility than the Apostle Paul. It, it tells, he tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23, about his imprisonments, about the fact that he was beaten times without number, often in danger. Five times, he says, I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And if you were continuing that passage, it goes on for quite a ways describing all the things that Paul endured as he took the gospel into the world. And today we're going to see that Paul used his personal testimony in an effort to diffuse hostility, an effort to open the way for people to hear the gospel. Now, in our study last week, we left the Apostle Paul in a rather precarious situation. Uh, You may remember he had gone into the temple to fulfill his vows uh, he was going to go undergo a purification rite himself because he had been off in Gentile lands preaching. And he was going to pay the way of these uh, certain Jewish men who were fulfilling a Nazarite vow. And in the process of going into the, the temple, the, uh, then a riot ensues. Because a group of Jews from Asia recognize him, they grab him, and they start making accusations against him. And when they do that, they call for help, and and all the people around, they don't even really know what's going on. They just turn into a mob, and they join this attack on the Apostle Paul, and they're beating him, literally trying to kill him. 
Now, fortunately for Paul, there in the temple courts, the Fort, Fort Antonio, uh, Antonio, which was a, basically a big tower that stood on the northwest corner of the temple complex, and all the soldiers were up there, they observed and they watched and they saw what was happening. They came down the stairs immediately, rushed out, and they rescued Paul from the mob. They were about to kill him. The, the, gov- the uh, commander, he's trying to find out what's going on. But when he asked the crowd what's going on, they don't even really know. One group saying this is what's happening, another group saying this, and another saying that. It's just confusing. And so what the commander does is I'm going to take him out. Of, he's going to take him out of the crowd, begins to take him back up the steps. And when he starts back up the steps, the apostle Paul, just being dragged from a crowd that's beating him, says to the commander, may I say something to this group of people? He speaks to the commander in Greek. He's surprised. He thinks he's some uncultured. He thinks he's, he's assumed that he is a terrorist, that he's a, a, a Jew from Egypt that is, that is a, a anti-Roman. And he says, what? And he begins, to, he learns that, the, that Paul is from Tarsus of Cilicia. And he says, Okay, I'll let you speak. Now think, Paul just got, just been beaten by these people and he stands up and you, what does he do? He gives his testimony to this group of people. And it's an amazing thing what, that Paul, Paul would do. Paul uses these negative circumstances as an opportunity. The crowd hadn't gathered to hear him preach. They gathered to kill him. But he gave an explanation of his past and how God had sovereignly intervened in his life and how God had redirected his life. And that's where we pick up today uh, in Acts chapter 22. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that I gave you some, I, I, I challenged you to give some thought to how you might personally give a testimony about what Christ has done in your life. I, 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 my challenge is, is that all of us would learn to declare the testimony of our salvation. We should learn to do that. And, and it says in Acts chapter 22 and verse 1, it says, Brethren and fathers, hear, the, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. Now, I want you to look at that word defense. It's a, it's a unique Greek word. It's the word apologia, from which we get our English word apologetics. Now, apologetics is not apologizing for your faith, but it is a reasoned, logical defense of why you believe, of, of why you do the things that you do. And, and so this is a great translation of this word. Paul is making a defense of why he is a Christian and why he is following Christ. It's a justification for his faith. Now, Paul's defense is logical. It's also biographical. In other words, he's going he's to share parts of his life. And, it's, and it is uh, experiential. It's what Paul personally knows to be true because he himself experienced it. Now, in that sense, it's called a testimony. 
And we're, as we consider Paul's defense, we, we see that there are three essentials in an effective testimony. Three essentials. The first is this, identification. Your life before Christ. Identification. And if you have your Bible, I want, to, I want you to read along with me, beginning in verse 3, verses 3 through 5. And Paul says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you all are today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons. And as the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify, from them I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to, there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. Now, Paul was seeking to identify with his hearers in order to diffuse the hostility, to de- de- defer suspicion, and to create interest. And, and throughout his speech, what he's doing is he is trying to emphasize the things that he and the people in the crowd had in common. He's trying to identify with them. They're Jews, so he wants them to know that he is Jews. He's simply trying to, 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 to uh, connect with them. So everything that he told them about his life had a purpose He's not telling them everything about his life. He's only selectively telling the parts that will be beneficial for them to connect with him so that the the hostility is not as great, so that they're not as suspicious, and to open the door so that he can have an opportunity to explain the gospel to them. And and he begins by simply refuting the, the charge that was made against him that he was preaching against the Jewish people. And Paul said, that's ridiculous. See, I, he says, am a Jew. In the Greek language, that is emphatic. In other words, he says, I I myself am a Jew. I'm a Jew. So I'm not against Jews. That's why he could address them as brethren and as fathers. See, far from being anti-Jewish, Paul has unimpeachable credentials as a Jew. He says, he goes on, he says, I was born among the Hellenistic Jews in Tarsus of Cilicia. I was born to Jews that were in the dispersion, we, that people that left Jerusalem and went other places and settled. I was born there, but I was raised in this city. What city? Jerusalem. You know what Paul says? Jerusalem's my hometown. This is where I grew up. I'm a Jew. I'm from Jerusalem. See, we got all this in common. And he says, not only that, but I I was educated under Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was the, the most revered rabbi of that time and one of the greatest in antiquity. And as a student of Gamaliel, Paul was educated, it says, strictly according to the law of our fathers. I know the Old Testament. I know all the rabbinical rituals. I know all of that. 
See, we have, in fact, see, Paul is saying in some ways, I'm far beyond you guys when it comes to being a Jew. He had, he, he had even been a Pharisee, the strictest kind of Jew. I mean, these, these were the, these were the, the far right. And so, and he says, and, and, and when you understand that, the idea that he opposed the law is totally ridiculous. Paul saw the, the law as good and righteous and just. And then he says, as a Jew who lives strictly according to the law, I was zealous just as you all are today. Now notice that Paul doesn't impugn their motives. He, doesn't say, he, he attributes their uh, try to kill him to their zeal for God. And and in fact, Paul says, you're zealous, and I understand that, because I was zealous too. In fact, I was so zealous that I was actually killing Christians. In fact, I had received papers to go to Damascus and to extradite these Christians back to Jerusalem for punishment. And if you don't Believe that, well, all you got to do is ask your high priest and the officials, and they will tell you, yes, they gave me papers for that purpose. I know what it's like to be zealous. This is identification. You see? And Paul is setting them up, though, because he's about to show them that though they are zealous, their zeal, like him, was misplaced. Let me ask you this. What are some ways that you can identify with people that don't know Christ? What characterized your life before you came to know Christ? Now keep in mind that some things in your life will seem good to lost people. Do you know that? They'll, they'll seem positive. Paul identified with these people on a positive level. Paul didn't say, oh, my life was a wreck. Everything was falling apart. I needed Jesus. On the contrary, Paul said, I had it all. I was doing as right as right could be in the eyes of the Jews. You see what he's saying? He's identifying with them. And he's identifying with them with something that's positive. What about your life? What would the world, what does the world see as positive? What about, what if, what if you use most of your life seeking material gain? Working hard, building a business, making, raking in the dough. The world looks at that and says, good, good job. They identify with that, don't they? Or, or, you know, I'm trying to get success or, or fame or accomplishments. You might think, oh, I lived a party lifestyle. You know, man, we were having so much fun. Man, we were drinking all the stuff. We were doing all this. And the world says, oh, man, that's great. But so what you see, you're setting them up because what you discover is all those things that look so good, I found out they're really empty. They really don't satisfy in the end. Do you think there are people out there that can identify with that? Or perhaps you're like Kim Ty. Your life was characterized by false religion, pain, anger, bitterness, resentment, 
loneliness, disillusionment, searching for peace. Do you think there are people out there that can identify with that? Maybe you're one of those people that was in bondage to some something. Pornography, alcohol, drugs, whatever. Do you think there are people that can identify with that? Absolutely. And what you're doing is you're bringing the people to, into your life and you're saying, listen, this is where I was. And what I found out is that what the, my life was not what it needed to be. And in so doing, they recognize in their own lives, they may come to recognize in their own lives, I'm not where I need to be. You see, then Paul explained how Jesus miraculously intervened in his life. That brings us to the second essential element, and that is initiation. How you came to know Christ. Now, I use the word initiation because Paul did not recognize his need. Paul believed that in persecuting these Christians, he was actually doing the work of God. He saw himself as a good and zealous Jew. He didn't see anything wrong. He didn't recognize there was a problem until Jesus intervened in his life. And by the way, did you know that that is where everybody is that's lost? They don't see the problem most of the time. Uh, They don't recognize their lostness. And they need God to intervene somehow, some way in that life to help them to understand, yes, there's a problem. You see, we're blind apart from Christ. And God's the one who opens our eyes. You know, I once was lost, but now I see. Once blind, but now I see, right? Amazing grace. You know what that is? That's a, that's a personal testimony. How God entered his life. Changed him. So, when God enters your life, it changes you. Now, let's, let's pick up here in verse 6 of chapter 22. Acts chapter 6, verse 20, or Acts 22, verse 6. But it happened that as I was on my way approaching Damascus at noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. Verse 12, a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me said, Brother Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked at him 
And he said, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Again, Paul was on his way to Damascus to extradite these Christians back to Jerusalem for punishment. And it was about noontime. Brightest time of the day that suddenly there was a bright light. The, the glory of Jesus outshone the noonday sun. And it blinded Paul and it threw him, he fell to uh, the ground and it it was from heaven. It flashed all around, he says. And, and, and Paul is speechless. He's lying there on the ground in terror. And he hears this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, so all of a sudden, Paul's got a new revelation of what he's doing, an understanding of what he's doing. And, and, he's, and, he, and all he can do laying there is, is murmur, who are you, Lord? Do you think Paul didn't know who he was? I think he had a pretty good idea. But I'm sure that when he described the reply, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. Notice how Paul describes Jesus. Nazarene, a city in Israel. A, a historical person, a reality. I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. He must have been even more shocked. He must have been even more horrified. Instantly, Paul realized how wrong he had been about Jesus. And the one who, whom he had despised, the one whom he had rejected, the one who considered a, a, a heretic, a false messiah, was in reality the risen Lord. Man, the Lord of glory. Some of those people, upon hearing that, came to realize this is bad news because we also have rejected him. Maybe some of those were were people that had rejected Jesus originally back in Jerusalem before he was crucified. But suddenly there's all this realization that we have rejected our Messiah. That's the message. And knowing that some in the crowd would question whether or not that that the Lord had really appeared to him, then Paul calls in some corroborating witnesses. He points out, he says, that those who were with me on the road saw the light to be sure momentarily stunned by the brilliance. They fell to the ground in terror. But unlike Paul, they hear a voice, but they don't understand what it's saying. So these men know there was a bright light from heaven. Paul was blinded, and there was a voice from heaven. They can corroborate that. This is not some experience. This this is not some dream that Paul had on his bed that happened in his home in private. This happened on the road to Damascus. And there are witnesses that saw it all. 
So here is Paul speaking in a very plain way to these people, and Paul's traveling companions testify to the objectiveness of what had happened. Overwhelmed, Paul says, well, what shall I do? That's a good question, isn't it? What shall I do? What am I going to do now that I've come to this realization? And in reply, the Lord said, rise and go into Damascus. What's going to happen to Damascus? Well, you're going to be told everything that you need to know, everything that you need to do when you get there. And upon arriving there, Paul met a man uh, by the name of Ananias. And Ananias uh, is, is a person who God is going to use to speak to Paul and to give him direction in his life. And verses 11 and 12 says, Since he could not see because of the brightness of the light, he was led by the hand by those who were with him and came into Damascus. And verse 12 says, And as a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. Paul describes Ananias as a Jew who was well spoken of by other Jews. But Ananias was also a devout Christian. Now, Paul didn't, didn't, didn't describe him as a Christian. He described him as a Jew because he wanted to uh, diffuse the hostility that it would have if he'd been a, just, just described him as a Christian. You see what, how he speaks? He's speaking in a way that tries to diffuse the hostility everywhere he goes. And Ananias, when he speaks, he's reluctant. And he says, finally, he comes standing near. He says, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And when he declared that God had miraculously given him his sight back, he says that Paul, at that moment, looked up and saw him. You know what that means? Paul looked up. I have my sight back. It was an act of faith, believing Ananias, and he sees. And he told Paul in verse 14, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will, and to see the righteous one, and to hear an utterance from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Church, I believe that message is for you and me too. I believe that is consistent with everything that the Bible says that we are to be witnesses of all that we have seen and we have heard. You know what that means, what we're describing? We're describing what God has done in our lives. We have an obligation. We have a command, a directive, a mandate from God to be sharers of our testimony, to declare that truth, that reality. Are you all with me? When's the last time you shared your testimony? I'm using the word share, but I want to use the word declare. When's the last time you declared your testimony? Has it been a while? Do you even know? Do you even have a testimony? Do you have it worked out? Can you tell it clearly, plainly? How, how do you think that Paul got up and did all of this? right off the cuff? I don't think so. 
I think Paul had thought through this. I think he very carefully uh, gave those people what they really needed to hear. He had, he had experienced so much of this. His experience in the world had taught him, you've got to be ready. You've got to be ready in season and out of season to be able to present the truths of the gospel. And that personal testimony often opens the door for that very purpose. The declaration, the God of our fathers has appointed you, stresses the, the biblical truth that God is sovereign in salvation. Do you understand that, that God took the initiative? Without God initiating this, and Paul, Paul would have been continued to be blind and unaware. But God took the initiative into his life, confronted him with the, with the truth, with reality, and he says, I have appointed you. And he, he says, I've appointed you not only to be a believer, I have appointed you to do the work. I've chosen you for that purpose. And friends, the same was true with you. God has appointed you for this purpose. Now, listen, uh, that doesn't mean that we're not, that we on our part aren't responsible to respond to what God says. We are. But God is sovereign in all of this. And notice what Paul is doing. Paul exalted the Lord. He lifted up Jesus. He's saying to these people, this is not my plan. This is not my idea. This is God's working. This is what God wants. He's accomplished this in my life. But the sovereign purpose of God in choosing individuals certainly does not ever relieve us of our responsibility to respond. Therefore, this is look at what it says, Ananias exhorted Paul, verse 16, Now why do you delay? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Now unfortunately, that's a difficult uh, Greek verse to translate. And, and, and many people have mistakenly seen in this verse the idea of baptismal regeneration. That is the false teaching that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. You do not. Every person who trusts in Jesus Christ is commanded to be baptized. It's a matter of obedience. But you are never saved by being baptized. Y'all with me here? Okay, this is very important because this is a common teaching in this area that people believe that you have to be baptized in order to be saved, but that is not true. What did Paul understand that Ananias was saying to him? Here's what he understood he was saying to him. He was understanding him to say, call upon the name of the Lord and then be baptized. That's what he understood. You say, how do you know that? Because that's the message that Paul preached. In, in Romans chapter 10 and verse 8, he says, this is the word of faith which we are preaching. What are you preaching, Paul? How is a person saved? That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So how are you saved? 
by faith in the heart, believing the gospel that God, that Jesus Christ died for our sins, took that penalty, was buried, and rose again the third day, and that if we trust in him, he will forgive us our sins, he will transform our lives. That's how you're saved, right? And then once you're saved, what do you do? Then you're baptized, because baptism is the picture of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. It's the public proclamation of your inward faith. Now, grammatically, in this verse, faith, or calling on the Lord, as it's said here, is the antecedent to being baptized. Now, if you could read Greek, this would be clear. But in English, when you try to translate it in English, it sounds a little awkward. So literal, a literal translation of the verses would be would say, "Arise, get yourself baptized for your and your sins washed away, having called on His name." In other words, have, it's having called upon His name that necessitates the previous. And Romans thirteen ten thirteen says, "For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." By relating the circumstances of his conversion, you know what Paul does? He turns the tables on his adversaries. And, he, and what he's doing is he's saying, what I've done is acted in submission to what God has asked me to do. See, my problem was I didn't recognize the truth. God took the initiative, intervened in my life, opened my eyes literally to see the truth And to understand that Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Just like Kim Tai came to understand. That's how Paul came to know Jesus as his Savior. Kim Tai was motivated by her pain to search for answers through books of religion. And in God's sovereignty, one of the books that she pulled off of the library shelf was a New Testament. And as she began to read that New Testament, she, in her own words, said she would begin to believe that what everything that Jesus said was true. And more importantly, that if she would believe in him, that he would save her. What's your story? How did God work in your life to bring you to the place where you put your faith in Jesus? Who did God use in your life? Almost always there there are people that God uses, the Ananias of our life, that God uses. Who did God use in your life? You see, you can learn to tell your story effectively in a hostile culture. And it, where does it begin? It begins with describing our life before we came to know Jesus and then how Jesus came to intervene in our lives and bring us to faith in him. But there's one other essential here that we need to consider, and that is transformation, your life after Christ. Paul's defense here includes his commission After he came to trust Christ. In other words, he he doesn't stop with, well, Jesus changed my life. But then he shows us what God was doing in his life after that. 
And let's read one more little section here, beginning in verse 17. He says, It happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when, you're, when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also stood standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were, slain, who were slaying him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Now, it's important for you to, to stop here just for a moment and understand this. Paul is not telling these people everything that happened in his life from the day of his conversion. Because we know from other scriptures that Paul went to Damascus and for a brief time he preached Jesus hard right there in Damascus. And then when opposition grew against him there, he went, according to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 17, he went into the Nabataean Arabia. He went into the desert for three years. And it's after those three years out there that that Paul returns to Jerusalem. And, and he's in the temple, it says, praying. Now let me ask you, see, they weren't interested in all that other stuff, but what are they interested in? Were they interested in Jerusalem? Yes. Were they interested in the fact that he's in the temple praying? Well, yes. See, he's connecting again with them. He, he's, he's selecting what he's telling them for his audience. And... And so he says, it happened, verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple. He, he fell into a trance. And that word trance there is an, also an interesting word. It's ecstasis. It's the word, Greek word, from which we get our English word ecstasy. In other words, Paul is describing a divine high, if you will. He's describing the, the fact that God has called him up out of the ordinary uh, circumstances of life, the ordinary senses, and he's caught him up into the presence of God where he is receiving divine revelation. He saw the Lord and he had a talk with the Lord. And this same word is used in Acts chapter 10 when it talks about Peter having a vision of the sheet coming down from heaven. This is a revelation. This is a revelation that Paul has from the Lord. Now, you and I aren't going to have those. But Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, certainly did. And you know what, Paul te- what, what the Lord tells Paul? He says, Paul, I want you to get out of town. You know why? Because they're not going to believe. They're not going to believe your testimony. But, but you see, Paul can't believe that. Wait a minute, Lord, there must be a mistake. There must be a mistake. Certainly they're going to believe that you've really transformed my life. Certainly you're going to believe, they're going to believe that you've changed the whole direction of my life because they all know that I, I mean, one synagogue after another, I was going in there, I was dragging Christians out, I was taking them off to be killed, put in prison. They would certainly know that God has done this miraculous thing in my life. Were all those things true? Yeah. Does the world really care? Sometimes not. Yeah, God really has changed the direction of a lot of people's lives. Does the world care? 
Not always. But there are some, there's some that God's at work in their lives who are searching, like the Kim Ties. They're, 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 they're those. But certainly not everybody. And you know, God says, listen, get out of town. Get out of town. He wrongly believed that seeing the radical transformation would, 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 think, would cause them to be, think differently about the gospel. But you know what Paul says? He says, listen, this is great because Jesus says, Paul, I didn't send you here, the Jews. They got your testimony. They heard it. They're not receiving it. You know what I'm doing? I'm sending you to the Gentiles. I've got another mission for you. And you're going to go to the, you're going to go to the Gentiles. And boy, listen. Paul is trying to explain to them why he has been off in Macedonia and in Asia preaching the gospel. This is the fulfillment of what God has called him to do. But when they hear the word Gentiles, they immediately shut him down and become a mob again, and they are ready to kill him. And Paul says, that's my testimony. That's my life before Christ. That's how I came to know Christ. And this is what God has called me to do since I came to know Christ. What's your story? Can you tell your life before Christ? Tell how God came to save you. And what has God done in your life since then we're called we're all called to serve right commercial commercial is let's serve get, get busy let's, let's join one of these ministries that's needing help because why does God save us called us to, to serve right let me give you some um, l- let me give you some uh, principles some summary principles very quickly here first of all Expect and accept hostility. In this world, we're going to get it. You just have to accept that as, as, as a reality from, from God, that God's put us in a world and we're going to face it. But, then, but don't let the hostility stop you. Look for and seize opportunities. Even when things are hostile, God can use you to still to be able to minister in the midst of all these things. Third, choose and demonstrate humility. Folks, it's not about you. It's not the great things that you have done. On the contrary, our job is to glorify and exalt the Lord. We put the, all the attention, all the praise on him. And then what do we do? We love and we pursue the lost even the people that are hostile to us. Paul turned around to a group of people that had just beaten him and wanted to kill him, and he presented his testimony to them. Why? Because he loved them. He loved them even though they were being hostile to him. And do you understand, if you, if you understand this, the world is hostile to God, and the world is hostile to the gospel, and the world though they can be extremely mean sometimes to us, persecute and all those kind of things, the world is our mission field. 
And we have to love them because God loves them. And don't forget, we were there. That's our testimony. I was where you are. I thought like you think. I did what you do. But God made the difference. And he'll make the difference in your life. That's the message. That's the message. Father, we thank you for your word.